Good morning. morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, What a, man, what a joy to sing, always, to sing of what God's done. I need to hear it. I need to to believe it um, and to remember who he is uh, each week with you guys is a joy. Um, A number of years ago, I, I was in the Dallas area with a few guys from our church, and we went to a Brazilian steakhouse. If you've not been to a Brazilian steakhouse, um, it's an experience. Um, and this steakhouse had just opened in the Frisco area, um, and they were offering uh, this. They were, so they were offering dinner cheaper than a normal Brazilian steakhouse. So we were like, we got to go do it. Um, and I, I honestly can't even hardly remember who was there, but I know Scotty Jinx was there because uh, he and I have, have talked about this uh, this evening. Um, and maybe, maybe John Fox. I'm not sure who else was there with us, but uh, as is standard as at a Brazilian steakhouse, they gave us these little round coaster-sized placards. Um, and you may know what that is if you, don't, if you don't, haven't experienced it before. One side of this round placard was green uh, with the word yes on it in big capital letters. The other side uh, said no uh, and it was red, big capital N-O. The green side, of course, meaning keep the meat coming. Uh, this, uh, this would let them know, the gauchos, the ones bringing the meat, uh, keep it coming. Uh, the red side, the no side, uh, meant, hey, it's at least I at least need to pause for a second. Um, but maybe later, maybe I'll flip it back over. But for now, I'm done, I'm full, I can't eat anymore. <clears throat> um, and so, uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a comedian, um, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, I, but every now and then, every now and then, my dad joke humor hits a uh, certain peak. Um, and in one of those uh, prouder moments, uh, I, as we were beginning or getting ready to begin the feast, I flipped my card over to the red side, the no side, and reading the letters upside down, I proclaimed, It's on. And if you get the uh, no spelled upside down, it's on. Um, in today's text, the feast is on. And as we follow Jesus' ministry, uh, we're going to see he's going to call a man named Levi to follow him. And then he finds himself at a party, at a feast, surrounded by sinners. And it's in the context of the party that he's going to answer some questions about feasting and about fasting and about sinners. So as we look at Jesus today, I want us to see four things. Number one, he's a savior for lowlifes. Number two, a time to feast. Number three, there's a time to fast. And number four, the better wine. Let me pray for us as we get started. Father, we need your grace. We always need your grace when we come to your word. We need ears that will hear. And not just that we'll hear the words that are said, but that we will actually see you for who you are. That our lives will actually respond as as doers, as as believers, and what you have shown us about yourself. So Father, would you would you speak to us? Would would you speak your truth to us? God, anything that I would say that's, that's in error, God, would you just take it away from me now and, and would you speak uh, the words that you would have us hear? And so, Father, we love you. Uh, would you lead us now? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, number one, he's a savior for low lives. Uh, look in verse 27, as we just read. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. 
So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. So Jesus, as always, is taking a very strange pathway toward building his brand. Uh, He started by by teaching a crowd in the synagogue who then tried to kill him. Not a great start. Uh, He healed a demon-possessed guy, an old woman, a paralytic, and a leper. Kind of an interesting crowd of people. And then he decides to find some friends, some disciples who will, will be his friends and his followers. And he goes out and gets some fishermen. This is not the recipe for brand building. In fact, maybe, maybe Jesus isn't building a brand at all. In fact, he's telling us what he's doing is he's proclaiming a kingdom. And as we see his choices, the people that he calls to, to be his closest followers, Jesus is showing us something. He's saying, this, these guys, this is what the kingdom's like. These are the types of people that the kingdom is for. And so if dirty, blue-collar fishermen aren't, enough, uh, aren't low enough on the societal totem pole, he doubles down. How about I hang out with a shady white-collar dude? Enter Levi, the tax collector, more famously referred to in other gospel accounts by the name Matthew. Now, even in 2022 America, tax collectors aren't our heroes. I don't think. Sorry if they are yours. Um, You don't hear a lot of people going, you know who I really admire and want to be like? The IRS. They really just, man, they really embody what I want to be like. No. Uh, But at least here... Our taxes are governed by democratic controls and laws. But imagine the tax collecting arm of Rome as they tax their occupied Jewish colonies. What will be the most effective way to get the money out of the Jews? Let's hire out to the highest bidder. And you know what? Actually, let's hire one of their own to do it. Let's hire a Jew. Levi got the job because he promised Rome the most money. He would collect tax money from his own countrymen. And when he had met his obligations that he promised Rome, everything else that he collected, that was his profit. It's a system that's, I mean, ripe for corruption, right? So of course, he's hated by his own people. He's a traitor. Jewish leaders would call tax collectors thieves, and rightfully so. He, he is a Jew helping to oppress his own people for money. And so up walks Jesus to the tax booth, and he says to Levi, follow me, come with me. Levi had to be looking around going, me? You want me? He, he would have seen himself as an outcast. Like, like, you don't, I don't think you know who I am. I'm not, you got the wrong guy. Uh, but here is this Jewish rabbi inviting a tax collector to be his pupil, his follower. And what does Levi do? Verse 28, so leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. No two weeks notice, no leave of absence. He leaves this lucrative life and he throws it all in with Jesus. I'm in. Jesus has this effect on people. We're gonna see that. Levi was burning the ships. He's leaving it all behind to follow Jesus. But clearly he had made some money. So look what he does in verse 29. Verse 29. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. So Jesus didn't just get an invite uh, to, from the rowdies here. No, Jesus was the guest of honor. 
he, he showed up. He went to the party. And the Pharisees see this happening and they're going, hey, what are you doing? Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to the, his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Which as a side note, I love that he's complaining to the disciples of Jesus, not to Jesus. <laughs> they're not going straight to Jesus. Uh, but look, whatever was going on here, Levi knows it's significant. He knows something special has happened to him. Jesus is an important man. And, and so Levi's going, if you, if you want to be with me, I, I want to honor you. And so he throws a party to celebrate Jesus. And then he wants his friends there. Probably the only types of friends he has. Some other shady folks for sure. And of course, the religious people have a problem with it. They're, they're going, hey, you're eating and drinking. And who with? With sinners, tax collectors. This is really a two-part accusation on the part of these leaders. You're going to parties, eating and drinking. That's not a pious thing to do. And look who you're doing it with. Tax collectors and sinners. You claim to be a rabbi? A miracle worker? The son of man even you've called yourself? These are unclean people, Jesus. And you're treating them like your friends. Do you even care about holiness? This is built into their questions. You see, the Pharisees were separatists. To them, holiness didn't just mean abstaining from sin. It meant abstaining from sinners. They would never have accepted this kind of invitation. No one would have thrown them a party either. But hopefully the fact that they wouldn't go, hopefully that rings a little ridiculous with us. Because their separatism wasn't faithful adherence to the law. It was an abuse of the law. But before we, before we pile on to the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, it seems like one of the major functions they serve in the gospel accounts is to be the voice of our inner legalist. They often say the things that we might say or maybe we just think it deep down. Things like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I should, I'm gonna keep my distance from that kind of person. Proverbs says bad company corrupts good morals. So I should, you know, that means I should not associate with them. Stay removed. Maybe I adopt them as a project. I pray for them at our Bible study and uh, I, I might get around them enough to share the gospel with them, but I'm not gonna go to their parties. I'm definitely not gonna be called their friend. But that's not who we are, is it? Christians aren't separatists, are we? Why? Because God was not a separatist with you. The Holy One came to you. Praise God that Jesus didn't stay separate from me and from you. All sinners need the presence of the Savior and therefore none of them are beyond our presence. So Jesus walks right into the party up to the low life table and he takes a seat. And so should we. Certainly we don't join in sin, uh, but we must be willing to at some point get next to and be with friends with sinners. And so they're accusing Jesus. This is what the Jewish leaders do. They, they want to catch him in hypocrisy. They have the perfect question that's going to stump him. This is what they always do. They want to embarrass him. But Jesus always responds the best. I mean, he's the best at it. Uh, verse 31, Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I mean, you just hear that and you go, boom, mic drop. That's kind of how we hear it, at least. That should have embarrassed them. 
And I, I really, I, that, badly, I want that to be like what the verbal takedown that I hear it as, uh, just a perfect dig. But they're so lost in their self-righteousness, I don't even think they actually get it as an insult. And because we're gonna, Jesus is gonna say some similar things later, but stronger. He's gonna call them fakes. He's gonna tell them, you're hypocrites. You clean the outside of a tombstone. That's who you are. But on the inside, it's just all dead stuff. You're like a used cup with rotten, dried, caked milk in the inside of the cup. But the outside, it's all neat and shiny. That's who you are. And that's, that's what this dig is here. Oh, you're sick too. Just like these tax collectors, you've just covered it up. You need the same doctor they do. The difference is you think you're healthy. You believe you're righteous. When it's time to confess at Bible study, uh, you can't even think of anything. Your, your confessions are, well, you know, I don't know, maybe, I guess maybe this week I prayed and fasted too much. That's your confession. They're self-righteous. And this is such a huge uh, theme in Luke over and over. The good news is this. Jesus saves who? Sinners. Not the righteous ones. And where there is no sin, then there can be no good news. This is why in Luke 17, we see a dirty tax collector praying, have mercy on me, a sinner. But all the Pharisee in that same scene can think to say when he prays is, I thank you, Lord, that I'm so righteous, that I'm not like this unrighteous tax collector over here. I thank you that I'm holy, that I go to the temple, that I'm generous. Really, now that I think about it, Lord, praise to me. How great am I? But Jesus will say then to those who listen, only the tax collector was forgiven. Why? Because the one who humbles himself will be exalted, but with the one who exalts himself, he'll be humbled. Listen, if you want the healing treatment of the gospel of Jesus, you must see that you're sick. And when you see how sick that you are, how sick that you were, that Jesus came to be with you, that he loved you, that he made you well, when you see that, you'll fling the doors open to your life and you'll throw a party for Jesus. You'll want to honor him. And you'll probably want to invite your sinful friends to come and to meet him and eat with him too. And don't miss th this amazing truth like the Pharisees did. Jesus came for sinners, for the sick, and that's us. And I think this is possibly one of the theme verses of Luke. That this is Jesus' mission. I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. We see this over and over again. And of course, all the Pharisees heard was, okay, so you came for losers like them. That's what they hear. But what he really said was, I'm at this party because these people know they need me. You think you're good, but doctors don't treat people who think they're good. So I'm gonna eat with them. They're my mission. And since they didn't get it, the Pharisees just keep going. They keep asking their questions. Okay, Jesus, so let me get this straight. You, okay, we got it. You came for these gross sinners, but you didn't answer the second question. Why does your ministry resemble a party? Number two, a time to feast. Look at verse 33. When they said to him, or then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. So here's their, here's their legalism again. Eating and drinking, sinful. 
fasting and praying, holy. That's their paradigm. Again, they're accusing him. We don't eat and drink like you're doing. No, we are holy. We show that by our frequent fasts and our public prayers. Now, there was only one prescribed national fast in the Old Testament that happened around the Day of Atonement. But individuals would also fast for a number of other reasons, maybe for mourning or for a focus in a season of prayer or from abstaining from sin. And, and none of these were bad practices. These are good. But for many Jews, especially these leaders, fasting became a sign of holiness. Rabbis would teach, you, you want to be holy? Here's what you need to do. Then you need to fast every Monday and every Thursday. And that became a rabbinical custom that was taught. In fact, early Christians were warned about fasting on Mondays and Thursdays because that's when the hypocrites do it, did it. The, the Didache, an instruction book for, the first, for, for a, a community of first century Christians, it said, here's what it said, let not your fast be with the hypocrites for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Um, they, they became famous for that, for their, for, for their hypocrisy, that they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, these Jewish leaders. Instead of fasting as a means of devotion to God, they just fasted to show off. And several times in the Old Testament, we see the prophets condemning this kind of fasting. In Zechariah 7, God says to the people, he says, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth and the seventh month for these 70 years, did you really fast for me? When you eat and drink, don't you eat and drink simply for yourselves? And then he goes on in verse nine. How, how about instead of exalting yourself, try this. Why don't you make fair decisions? Why don't you show faithful love and compassion to one another? Why don't you stop oppressing the widows and the fatherless? Oppressing the resident aliens and the poor. How about you just stop doing those things? Stop with all your fasting for yourself. You didn't fast for me. You did it for you. And how crazy that, they're, that these Pharisees, as they talk to Jesus, they're trying to lump themselves in with John the Baptist. You see, see Jesus, John's disciples, they fast. He lived a life of self-denial. He was out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey. See Jesus, he was holy. John was holy, just like us. Never mind that they hated John uh, and that later they're gonna call John crazy and say that he, was, he went too far with his fasting. Uh, but they'll grasp at anything to trip Jesus up. Us and John, we're the holy ones. Uh, we're super pious. We fast a lot. And here you are, Jesus. I don't know. I'm not sure what you're doing. This isn't good. But again, Jesus turns it back on them. He points them back to their hearts. He flips their categories. He's telling them, you think feasting and fasting is all about holiness. But really it's not. It's about true satisfaction. Listen to him in verse 34. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. I was in a wedding a number of years ago and after the ceremony, uh, you know, the, the wedding party, we, we stuck around uh, for pictures, which always takes longer than you want it to, right? You're ready for the party. Like, oh, how many more arrangements of people do we need? Um, and sorry, photographers, I know that's a really hard job. Uh, but man, we're ready to eat. Uh, we're ready to party. Okay, so we, we 
so we finally finished that. We go into the reception. It's a grand entrance, celebration, all the dances that happen right then, right? The first dance uh, with the husband and wife. And, and then there's the, the father of the bride with the, the, the bride and the mother of the groom with the groom uh, doing all these things. And, and somewhere along the way in this reception, we hear the crushing news. Hey, okay, so first good news. Uh, most of the guests went through the dinner line. They got their barbecue plates. Bad news, food's gone. It's all gone. And of course, none of us had eaten. We're like, no. So what was the response? Well, you know, a wedding, it's a holy moment. The Lord is our feast. Let's just enjoy him. Let's not indulge on food tonight. Let's fast and enjoy Jesus. No. No, the response was we gotta eat. This is a party, and Jesus wasn't available at the moment that I knew of, that we, we, we couldn't get someone to do a miracle to turn our five rolls and two sausage links into baskets full of barbecue. And so someone said, hey, I'm going to order some pizza. And so we ordered some pizza. And why? Because the groom is still here. It's time to celebrate. Now the bride and the groom are here. So even if it's Domino's and groom's cake, let's feast. Jesus says, you can't make the guests fast while the groom's here. So that's what he's talking about. But, but, but why, what does that mean here? This party with Levi is not a wedding. It's just a banquet. So, so what does this mean? I think Jesus is making a couple pretty astounding points here. First, the Old Testament frequently refers to God as the groom or the, hus- the husband of his bride, Israel. So in using groom language to refer to himself, Jesus is making a not so subtle nod to the fact God himself has come to be with the people. Notice Jesus doesn't start this story by saying, hey, let me tell you a story about a wedding. No, he's saying the groom, me, the groom's here, I'm here. A time will come when I won't be here, but I'm here now. This is redemptive history unfolding in front of their eyes. The the kingdom of God has moved from a a fuzzy black and white sketch drawing of the future. Yeah, you know, I can kind of see it. I I can imagine. I can imagine what a, a king is like and what a kingdom of God could be like. This new vision of the kingdom that they're getting, it's, it's here. It's breaking in with Jesus and it's in 4K, 8K. Can, can you see it? They're seeing it. The kingdom is the one where sick will be healed. The dirty will be made clean where even sins will be forgiven. Most importantly, the kingdom is where the true groom, Jesus himself, God himself will be with you. And that's what's happening. The groom is here. Now, what a time, what a time for these people to be alive and to witness this. There's no longing for healing in this moment. Only healing. There's no yearning for forgiveness. No, the, ones, the one who forgives sin is here. He's in the room. There's no thirsting and hungering for true satisfaction. Why? Because the bread of life has pulled up and has reclined at the table. The feast is on. Jesus is at the table and it's all you can eat. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. I'm the groom. I'm here. 
And you know why you're so eager uh, to stop this party? It's because you don't recognize the groom. You don't see that everything that your fasts and your public prayers were supposed to point to, everything that it pointed to is here now. It's with you. It's fulfilled in me. And if you could see that, you'd come into the party. If you could only see who you were talking to, you would drop to your knees. You would weep for your sin. And you'd pull up a chair. You'd fill up a plate and you'd rejoice. But then Jesus says, it's, it's not all going to be a party. Number three, there's a time to fast. Look at what he says in verse 35. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. I don't think this is a reference to Christ's death when he says the groom will be taken away. And let me explain that. Because um, it kind of sounds like maybe, maybe this is what we're building towards. Remember when Jesus talked about his death in John chapter 10, what did he say about it? He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. That's, that's how Jesus described his death. Christ's life wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. But when was his life taken? Well, after his resurrection, as Jesus ascends into heaven, how does Luke describe it? Acts 1, verse 9, he writes, After he had said this, he, Jesus, was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus is taken. In those days, they will fast. Jesus is talking about his ascension. He's talking about now, the church age, when, when yes, his spirit is with us, but the groom himself, his, his physical presence with us is gone. What will he say? He'll say, I go to prepare a place for you. And in those days, he says, you'll fast. You will long. You will look forward with hope to when the groom comes again. So, so which is the life that Jesus invites us to? What is he inviting us to now? Is it the life of celebration, of joy and fullness and the presence of the groom, Jesus? Well, yes, in a sense. He says he came that we might have life, abundant life. And when you do, uh, John 15 says, he, he says, you'll have joy. Your joy will be complete. Christ is in us, Paul says in Colossians 1. But How? As, as our hope of future glory and joy with him. It's not, it's not fully ours yet. So, so yes, even now, he has invited us to the celebrative life of, with the groom. We're, we're to celebrate. But also, we still groan. We, we wait, Titus 2 says, for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We still want the groom to be with us. We, we still long for him. We, we want to see him. We hunger. And, and we know he satisfies us now, but still we know not every longing is fulfilled. And so this is why we fast. The New Testament assumes this is part of the life of a Christian. Even in this encounter, Jesus tells the Pharisees, when the groom is taken away, they will fast. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus, when teaching about fasting, he says, when you fast, not maybe you'll fast or think about fasting. No, when you fast. And it's great because Jesus' only instructions here about fasting are basically, hey, when you fast, don't do it like them. Don't do it like the Pharisees. What does he say in Matthew 6? Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. He's saying what we just said earlier. They're just showing off. They're showing you how great they are. They're not doing this for me. But then he says in verse 17, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, clean up so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He'll reward you with himself. So all this talk about fasting. So so what is it and why do it? Most obviously, fasting is a giving up of food. Uh, we, We get this in our own food language. Some of you have tried this new thing, right? Intermittent fasting. So you know that terminology. Uh, If you haven't, uh, then surely you've heard of the popular meal that we eat in the morning called break fast, right? Uh, You know, that that meal that we eat after we've been fasting all night, uh, otherwise known as sleeping. But historically, fasting has included more than just food. Uh, The famous preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this about fasting. He said, fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food and drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything, which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. That is fasting. I love that that not only did Jesus speak of fasting, but the early church continued this practice, and, and many throughout church history have spoken about it and practiced fasting. John Calvin said, let us say something about fasting, because many, for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity and some reject it as almost superfluous. While on the other hand, where the use of it is not well understood, it easily degenerates into superstition. Holy and legitimate fasting is directed to three ends. For we practice it either as a restraint on the flesh to preserve it from licentiousness, as a preparation for prayers, or when we are desirous of confessing our guilt before him. Eusebius, the early church historian, he wrote in the fourth century, he was looking back at, this, at the church in the second and third century, and this is what he wrote about how, uh, how they would fast. And he talked about how they would fast in preparation to celebrate the resurrection in the spring. And he talked about how this was happening all over the world. This is what he wrote. The churches in the rest of the world observe the practice which from apostolic tradition, so all the way back to the apostles, has prevailed to the present time of terminating or ending the Paschal, the Passover fast on no other day than that of the resurrection of our Savior. Okay, so now as as Protestants, we affirm the cry of the Reformation, right? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our guide to life and faith. And, And so there is no New Testament prescription that says, here is when the church should fast. Only the expectation that we would. But how amazing is it that the early church saw fit as modeled by the apostles to fast in remembrance of the crucifixion of our Lord. That they would remember our Passover lamb died 
Jesus died to cover our sin. And so while he's not with us, we long for him. And we wanna long, we wanna, we're gonna fast to remember that longing. But oh, the groom is coming. His resurrection is proof. And so for this reason, they would break their fast and they would feast on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Why? Because our coming groom is alive. Isn't that amazing? That, that's part of the historic practice that many have referred to as Lent. You've maybe practiced or heard of Lent. So, so why would we give up food or other non-sinful pleasures, whether, whether during Lent or uh, at any other time of the year? It's not because life is bleak and gray, uh, and because we are trying to live our best monk life now, uh, because we like to make ourselves feel pain. Um, and no, it's not, it's not any of those things. No, we fast for a number of reasons. I'll list just a few. Uh, for a season of confessing and turning back to God, repenting. For a season of seeking God about a need, whether for ourselves or for a loved one. Or even like this week as we fasted and prayed as a church for Ukraine. Or we fast simply to long for and remember that it is our Savior who satisfies us. And when we fast, we, we fast to gain a brief reminder that our true bread, our true joy, our true and better groom, he's alive. And one day he's coming. And when he comes, he, he's gonna bring the feast to end all feasts. John Piper put it this way. He said, Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. Church, let's, let's let ourselves feel just a little hunger here. Just every now and then that we would feel a little hunger. Why? So that we can remember that one day, all of our hungering, all of our restlessness here, all of our FOMO, it's gonna be no more. All of our grieving gone when he comes. When we, the bride, feast forevermore in the all-you-can-eat buffet of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll be with our groom, Jesus, then. Do you really long for Jesus? Do you really yearn for him to come? And not just because your knees hurt. Sometimes my knees hurt. Uh, and not, not just because of that, but pain is a great reminder to yearn for Jesus. But do you yearn for him just because you want to be with him? Does your heart ache for him to just come, sum everything up so that we can enjoy you? I hope for many of you the answer is yes, but, but I'm going to assume that for many of us the answer is, you know, I really don't. Not enough, not very often. Maybe you wish you did, but you find it hard to really want more of Jesus, to long for his presence, to yearn for him, to yearn to be with his people, and to go to him in prayer. Can I just suggest that maybe it's difficult to yearn for Christ? Because whenever you feel a sense of unfulfillment in this life, you just go ahead and fill it. You meet it. Every time you, you feel the pain of sadness, you treat it with another dopamine hit of social media or another show to binge, another video game. Every time you feel the pain of hunger, 
you meet it with food, with a snack, with a new restaurant, something deep fried probably, just to make sure that the pain stays low. Or maybe you satisfy your desire for material things, for that adrenaline high, for sex. And maybe instead of sitting in the discontentment and the si- of silence or of solitude, you just go to shopping online, to running to f- fulfill a, a sinful lust, or, or maybe just to plan that next vacation. Fasting can take many forms, from food, yes, but from other easy forms of entertainment and satisfaction. Why? Because we're so easily satisfied by trinkets. We're so easily filled up with cotton candy that we never get hungry enough. We never get bored enough to remember that there's something so much better. We are the quintessential travelers to the Grand Canyon only to stay in our cabin and watch Netflix. That's us. Lord, would you help us? Help us to hunger. Would you satisfy us? Jesus ends by giving a couple of fascinating word pictures. This is our final point, number four, the better wine. Verse 36 says, he also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Okay, it's 2022. What are you talking about, Jesus? Like, this is one of those that's... I've always imagined uh, that this parable had... Uh, was maybe more complicated than it really is, but I, I don't think it's that complicated. He's using two unrelated word pictures and he's, just make, he's using them together to make a point. You can't take a piece of new cloth, tack it onto some old garment, it won't work. The new cloth is gonna shrink when it gets wet and it's gonna tear away from the new one and, it's gonna, and you're gonna end up ruining both things. You're gonna ruin the new thing and the old thing. Not a good pair. And the same is true with new wine. You can't take the brand new wine and put it in the old containers. Those old wineskins were made from animal skins, but they're, but they're old now and they're brittle and, and, the, and they're hard. And so when you put the new wine in and wine expands, it's gonna break the skins. And then what do you have? You, have no, you lose the wine and the container. You're gonna ruin both. They don't match, they don't go together. So what, what is he talking about? He's saying the sinner-seeking savior, Jesus He isn't just the mascot for your self-righteousness. He's saying, you fasted, you you went to church, great, but you didn't do it because you long for the groom. You did it because you love yourself. Christian, the gospel is something brand new. It's altogether new. You you can't pour the new gospel, the, the, the gospel of Jesus into the old container of your pride. Your legalism, your judging others just because you think you're a little more holy than them. They don't go together. Your fasting and your giving and your serving to be seen by men, it doesn't match up with the new news of Jesus. When you do that, you distort both of them. You distort the message of the gospel and, and, and eventually you destroy your own soul. 
Jesus will not be the mascot. He won't be our mascot. We can't sing of how much we need him and we love him and long for him when we only long for him if there's an audience around. This was the sin of the Pharisees. And Jesus won't be that. He won't be the bumper sticker that we can show everyone else. No, he has to be the whole thing. He's gotta be our whole life or nothing at all. And Jesus ends the story with this final warning in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine once knew because he says the old is better. Notice this is not a wine lesson. Like this is, I'm not a, I'm not a wine snob, but I have friends who are wine snobs. Um, and this is not a, ah, yes, I know how wine works. Uh, I think that's how wine snobs talk. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> the old wine is superior. Uh, no, that's, that's not what this is. Jesus is not saying, I am the vintage, old wine, uh, poured out for you. No, that's not what he's saying. He's actually saying, I'm the new wine. I'm the new stuff. But he's saying, many are content to just keep sipping the old stuff. They're satisfied with what they already have. They don't even want to taste the new They don't long for what's better, for the new wine, the new kingdom. These Pharisees, they had developed quite a palate for legalism, for law keeping. That was the old wine and they loved it. But little did they know that they were sipping on poison. The same poison that grew on that fruit tree in the Garden of Eden. And we may not so obviously reject Jesus, but I I think many of us have become so satisfied with our performative fasts, with the applause that comes from our righteous works, with singing songs about how much we need Jesus, but never actually turning from sin and really knowing that we need him and believing and and seeking him. And, And here's the danger, that we would become addicted to being seen as a good Christian, but never actually know and love Jesus himself. If that's you, if that's where you're at this morning, just stop running. Stop striving. Stop performing. And repent. Turn from that. Repent with fasting if you need to. Come to the Lord. Jesus, he wants to satisfy you. He will satisfy you. And he won't satisfy you with the applause you get from your performance. No, he'll satisfy you with himself. Ditch the old, old wineskin of performative religion. Stop trying to impress others and God himself with your faithfulness. No, instead, pull up a chair, weep over your sin, and then fill up a gospel plate and partake. Be satisfied with Jesus. One of the best things about a Brazilian steakhouse is they will keep the meat coming as long as you want them to. And this is how it is with Jesus. As we taste of his grace, he will continue to fill your plate with more and more and more to enjoy. Grace upon grace. The feast is truly on. And no other love, no other meal, no older wine will taste better than the gospel of his grace. Let me pray for us. Father, would you convince us? Would we believe that you are indeed better? 
that the gospel of grace, that your son, Jesus, that, that he is indeed what will satisfy our soul. And will we believe it to the point of, of fasting from other things so that we just might remember it? Of running from sin and killing sin so that we might long for Jesus? But God, we also know that, that we, we can't stir that up within ourselves. We need your spirit to work in us. We need, we need to see you for who you are. So would you do that for us? Would you draw us to yourself? Would you help us to see clearly our groom Jesus and to long for nothing else? And so would you lead us now? We ask this in Christ's name, amen.